Due to the graphic nature of these kingpins' crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug running and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. April 20th, 1988 was a warm morning in Tampa, Florida. The scent of rain still hung in the air. Sandhill cranes wandered the marshes near the small shipping port where DEA agents were lying in wait. An anonymous letter from Cali, Colombia had hit their office nearly a month before. It claimed the Medellin cartel was smuggling cocaine on a freighter called the Amazon Sky. The DEA watched patiently as the freighter's crew unloaded 9,000 pieces of lumber for inspection. The inspectors drilled into planks at random, finding nothing but solid wood. For a while, it looked like the letter was nothing more than an elaborate practical joke from the Medellin cartel's rivals in Cali. Until... A crewman dropped a plank. He frantically recovered it, looking around to check that no one had seen, but an inspector had. He drilled into the plank, and when the drill bit came out, it was caked in white powder. Within a few days, the DEA would seize 3,270 kilograms of cocaine hidden inside 700 planks on the freighter. And when Pablo Escobar learned about the anonymous letter from Cali that had tipped off the authorities, his reaction was immediate. If the Cali cartel wanted war, then war is what they'd get. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. This is our third of a four-part series on Gilberto and Miguel Rodriguez Orihuela, brothers who made up half of the Cali cartel in Colombia. This week, we'll dive into the brothers' lives at the height of their power. Next week, we'll explore the investigations that finally destroyed the Cali empire. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. The early 80s had been kind to the Cali cartel. Gilberto and Miguel Rodriguez Orihuela and their co-godfathers, Chepe Santa Cruz and Pacho Herrera, had managed to transform their drug trafficking operation into a multi-billion dollar business conglomerate too big to fail. The snowy mountains of Cali, Colombia had unleashed an invisible avalanche upon New York City. Thousands of kilograms of cocaine, 
more than the DEA had ever seen before, were entering the city with painstaking regularity. The Cali cartel, the DEA realized, were pocketing at least $1 million a week in profit from each of their stash houses. And who knew how many of those there were? All the while, the four godfathers peacefully ruled over Cali, Colombia. The cartel had made Colombia dependent on its business by employing thousands of citizens in their legal and illegal enterprises, which by now included drugstores, banks, pharmaceutical labs, restaurants, accounting firms, radio stations, and soccer teams. They even owned the surveillance companies the DEA tried to use to wiretap them. The DEA decided to open a small branch in Cali in 1983. One of their first moves was to wiretap the Godfather's multiple homes. But they quickly discovered that the telephone operators, the people installing the wiretaps, and the judges who signed off on the wiretaps were all on the Cali cartel's payroll. Whenever a line was bugged, the cartel would find out and have the surveillance warrant killed almost immediately. The DEA could do nothing to stop Cali as their operations kept expanding. Thanks to Cali's cooperation with the Medellin cartel, combining shipments and sharing the same infrastructure in southern Florida, they were moving product into the United States like never before. Even if a shipment was seized, anything having to do with cocaine in the American South was automatically attributed to the Medellin cartel. The DEA seemed blind to the fact that some of the product was ending up in New York City, or they were politely turning a blind eye. All their resources were still focused on Medellin. But on one occasion, the price of a seized shipment was more than the Cali cartel could bear. In 1983, a mid-level distributor named Alfredo Cervantes and an airplane pilot met in Waycross, Georgia. They were supposed to fly 67 kilos of cocaine to their hub in Houston. Men who flew into the small town of Waycross on private jets usually flaunted their wealth. But Cervantes and the pilot touched down in an ostentatiously expensive plane then immediately retreated and avoided being seen by anyone around town. This only aroused suspicion instead of curtailing it. Rumors spread like wildfire in the small southern town. After some grumbling from the locals, the police did a background check and discovered the pilot was a fugitive. Before Cervantes and his pilot could take off for Houston, the Waycross police were on the scene. Authorities seized over 1,500 kilograms of cocaine and arrested both men. It was a sizable blow to the Cali cartel, made even worse when Cervantes made his one phone call from jail. Chepe Santa Cruz answered the phone and immediately hammered Cervantes with questions about the shipment. Cervantes cowered, waiting for the right opening to tell his boss he was in jail. Within a few seconds, Chepe had revealed the location of two other shipments soon to arrive in a Georgia port. Neither man knew that DEA agents were listening in on the call. After a lengthy discussion, Chepe finally asked Cervantes what had gone wrong. Cervantes told him he was in jail. Once Chepe realized his mistake, 
he ordered the other shipments to be rerouted to Florida. But it was too late. After tracking Chepe for four years, American authorities finally had direct evidence linking the Cali Godfather to drug trafficking. On October 19, 1983, Chepe Santa Cruz was officially indicted on drug smuggling charges by a federal grand jury in Georgia. Chepe was a difficult man to track down, and by the next February, he was declared a fugitive. While he was on the run, Chepe was working on a new smuggling plan. The Cali cartel purchased a front business in Jacksonville, Florida, called the Masaryk Trading Company. On paper, the company imported a toxic fungicide called Maneb 80 from Colombia. In reality, the barrels marked with a skull and crossbones were packed full of cocaine. Chepe did several dry runs with real Maneb 80 and discovered that U.S. customs agents weren't willing to handle or even closely inspect hazardous material. He also realized that frozen broccoli shipments, for some reason, were rarely inspected. In the five months between the time Chepe was indicted and the time he was listed as a fugitive, the cartel smuggled nearly 7,000 kilos of cocaine into the States in those Maneb 80 fungicide barrels. And throughout the 80s and early 90s, thousands upon thousands of kilos of cocaine crossed into the United States, hidden in frozen food bags. All the indictment had done was bruise Chepe's ego. The Cali Godfathers were also too preoccupied with troubles at home to worry about such a small hiccup in the U.S. In 1982, Pablo Escobar of the Medellin cartel had been elected to a seat in Colombia's Congress. Everyone knew Escobar was a drug lord, but he had been tentatively accepted by Colombia's elite as a businessman until he ran for public office. Colombia's justice minister, Rodrigo Lara Bonilla, stepped into the spotlight and accused Escobar of being a drug lord, bringing charges against him for drug possession. Like a shamed dog, Escobar tucked his tail between his legs and retreated from the podium, from public life, and from his political aspirations. But once he regained his confidence, his retaliation was brutal. In April 1984, Lara Bonilla was met with the cyclonic sounds of machine gun fire as he stepped out of his Bogota residence. When Gilberto Rodriguez awoke to the news of Lara Bonilla's assassination, he called Escobar. Gilberto asked, do you realize what you've done? He could hear Escobar's cocky, angry chuckle, soft on the other end of the line. In the following days, the Colombian president had no choice but to declare a zero-tolerance war on drugs. The Cali Godfathers were forced underground. But they had no plans to slow down business. With Colombia in turmoil, they used the opportunity to focus on their cartel's international branches. Miguel Rodriguez, Chepe Santa Cruz, and Pacho Herrera fled from Mexico to work on setting up new smuggling routes. The 2,000-mile border between Mexico and the United States offered ample opportunity, and Mexico already had a network of heroin and marijuana traffickers eager to add cocaine to their rosters. With the DEA's attention on the shipping ports in Miami, 
human mules could easily carry all manner of product into the United States from the border. Over the next few months, the Cali cartel succeeded at expanding into Los Angeles. Next, Hilberto turned to his old friend Jorge Ochoa, one of the godfathers of the Medellin cartel, and told them they should head to Europe. We'll explore the Cali cartel's European expansion right after this. Now, back to the story. Due to the sheer amount of cocaine the Cali and Medellin cartels had introduced to the United States, by 1984, the sale price had tanked. In Europe, cocaine was still selling for four times as much. Hilberto Rodriguez saw a new opportunity on the horizon. He recruited his old friend Jorge Ochoa, one of the godfathers of the Medellin cartel, and the two Colombian cartels went in on a joint venture. In late 1984, the two men rented an 8,000-square-foot party palace in southern Spain and set to work. Portugal would be their base of operations. They could ship directly into the ports, and from there, send their product as far and wide as Liverpool in the north and Warsaw in the east. Hundreds of kilos found their way to Berlin and Amsterdam within a few weeks. The number of cocaine seizures in the United Kingdom doubled within a year. Within five years, the total amount of cocaine on the continent rose from 900 kilos to 13 tons. Hilberto and Jorge flaunted their wealth in Europe. They were often seen at concerts or holding lavish parties with continental bigwigs. Making inroads with Europe's elite. Unfortunately, Gilberto seemed to forget that European authorities were unfamiliar with the decadence of South America's drug traffickers. One of Gilberto's wives also sparked suspicions by depositing hundreds of thousands of dollars in local banks. Jorge hammered the last nail in their coffin when he set his sights on 10,000 acres of land in Andalusia. Authorities suspected he planned to transform the area into their base of European operations. On November 15, 1984, both Jorge and Gilberto were arrested and sentenced to two years in a Spanish prison. The United States asked for their immediate extradition. For the first time, Gilberto found himself in a vulnerable position. If the U.S. got their hands on him, he would never see the outside of a prison again. He needed to get back to Colombia, where extradition to the United States was illegal. There was just one problem. Gilberto had greased so many palms in his home country, he didn't have a single charge filed against him in Colombia, so there was no reason to send him there. Until the cartel's stable of lawyers could figure out a way to get him back to Colombia, Gilberto would remain in a Spanish prison. And with Gilberto in jail, the responsibilities of running the cartel fell on Miguel's shoulders. The problems Miguel inherited were immediate. The chemicals the cartel used to process cocaine came from laboratories in the United States. They bought the chemicals in bulk and flew them into their processing labs in Colombia. But recently, the U.S. government had begun tracking every single order of these chemicals sent to South America, and Colombia in particular. Miguel and Chepe came up with a simple, shocking solution. 
they discovered the chemicals that were so rigorously tracked as exports weren't monitored at all if they were kept in the United States. They could keep buying the chemicals in any amount under any of their fake identities, and as long as they didn't try to take them out of the states, the DEA wouldn't even know. The decision was almost too easy. They would begin processing cocaine right in the good old U.S. of A. Their first lab was built on farmland outside Gibsonville, North Carolina in 1984. And by January of 1985, thousands of kilos of cocaine were pouring into New York City, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Houston, and Los Angeles, all from this one lab. Drivers drove vans with fake registrations to pick up acetone from Pennsylvania and ether from Virginia and bring them to the farm in North Carolina. U-Haul trailers arrived at the farm for pickup and the drugs were delivered to stash houses across the United States. No customs, no DEA inspections, no lag time. By April of 1985, a second lab was built on a farm outside Minden, New York, a sleepy town 200 miles from the Big Apple. If you'll recall, this lab produced 170 kilos within its first nine days of operation. And then promptly exploded on its 10th thanks to a faulty wire. Within two weeks, a new, better-equipped lab was up and running in Orange County, Virginia, less than 500 miles away. The Virginia lab would produce nearly 4,000 kilos of cocaine within seven months. But the DEA wouldn't let the Cali cartel go quite so easily. They now knew that cocaine was being processed in massive amounts right on American soil. The enemy had walked into their yard, into their house, and pissed all over their kitchen. They would have to respond in kind. After the Minden explosion, the DEA scoured the evidence left behind for any clues about the cartel's other labs. They found Chepe's list of phone numbers and ledgers for the lab in Gibsonville. That lab was easy enough to surveil and eventually raid, but there was also mention of a third lab, a new lab, located somewhere in Orange County, Virginia. That narrowed their search to 343 square miles of land, and it wasn't long before the local police found a farm matching the profile of the other two. From a fire tower nearby, police surveilled the farm day and night, dressed as farmers. Planes zigzagged across the sky, filming the farm's daily routine. Dozens of U-Haul trailers and sliding door vans left the farm every day. The police snapped photos, and soon it was enough for a search warrant. On July 2nd, 1985, an armored vehicle rolled to a stop outside the farmhouse. Police leapt out and surrounded the building, calling for the men inside to surrender. Three men gave up immediately. Police used tear gas to scare out three more. As police raided the property, they found enough cocaine processing ingredients to keep the lab running for months. Or maybe not, considering how quickly the lab was producing cocaine. The vans that had left the farm had been carrying 1,000 pounds of cocaine, with an estimated value of over $600 million. Two days later, the DEA raided two additional farms, 
one on Long Island and another in Virginia, billions of dollars of cocaine were confiscated. And yet, the DEA quickly discovered their victories had been harmless to the behemoth that was the Cali cartel. They were still making an average of $4 million per week per stash house. It's even more impressive considering Gilberto was still in prison and the other godfathers were still lying low in Mexico. Colombia, meanwhile, was descending into chaos in their absence. The Colombian war on drugs had triggered Pablo Escobar's fight-or-flight response, too. But going into hiding wasn't his style. With every move Escobar made, the Cali godfathers saw their chances of negotiating with the government slipping away. On November 6, 1985, Escobar sent 35 M-19 guerrillas to storm Colombia's Palace of Justice in Bogota. In minutes, the guerrillas took 250 people hostage, including 24 Supreme Court judges and a chief justice. For the next 24 hours, Colombia's Plaza de Bolivar swarmed with military and police, trying to find some way into the building. The back door had been rigged to blow. Smashing windows only set off alarms and warned the guerrillas they were breaking in. And snipers couldn't get a clear shot since the guerrillas were so well covered within the building. The military had no choice but to storm inside. The thousand soldiers swarmed into the building, picking off guerrillas as they went. In the aftermath, the bodies of all 25 judges, including the chief justice, were found littered across the marble floor, intermixed with the bodies of 35 dead guerrillas. And in the filing room, the military discovered Escobar's motivation for the sudden act of terrorism. The guerrillas had burned all the files for one case on which the justices were about to vote the case of whether to allow drug traffickers to be extradited to the United States. Despite the deaths of his guerrilla terrorists, Escobar saw the attack on the Palace of Justice as a resounding victory. Between 1985 and 1990, at least 40 federal judges and 200 court officials would be assassinated in graphic, public fashion at Escobar's request. It wasn't just open season on judges and lawyers. Journalists, military leaders, anyone who opposed Escobar's stranglehold on the country were placed on a Sicario hit list and disposed of. In one respect, Escobar's assault on justice failed spectacularly. When Colombian President Virgilio Barco took office in 1986, one of his first acts was to sign an extradition contract with the United States. Despised traffickers could be sent to the U.S. to face trial on a single judge's say-so. Good news for the DEA. Bad news for Gilberto Rodriguez, who was still trying to find a way out of Spanish jail. Fortunately for Gilberto, he had two things that Pablo Escobar did not. He had clever lawyers and a far less toxic reputation in Colombia. In 1986, his lawyers landed on a brilliant plan to set him free. They approached a judge close to the cartel and asked him to draw up charges against Hilberto that matched the American charges against him exactly. The drug smuggling, possession, intent to sell, and all. Now, with charges filed against him, 
the Colombian government could ask for his extradition from Spain to Colombia, which Spain readily granted. In March of 1987, Gilberto was brought before the very judge that had charged him and acquitted of all charges. The American Constitution has a double jeopardy clause, which prevents a person from being charged for the same crime twice. With the acquittal, Gilberto couldn't be extradited to the United States unless they came up with new charges and new evidence. He was free. Jorge Ochoa, however, wouldn't be so lucky. When he returned to Colombia in July of 1986, he had to face charges in the city of Cartagena, where neither cartel had friendly ties. Jorge was found guilty and sentenced to two years in prison, making him eligible for extradition to the United States. No one was surprised when he disappeared after posting bail. Now a fugitive in his own country, Jorge resented Gilberto's easy slip out of trouble and how much Pablo Escobar's violent arrogance was rubbing off on his own reputation. Escobar also resented Gilberto's easy slip and Cali's general success, even though he himself had offered Los Angeles up to whichever cartel could set up their infrastructure first. The fact that Cali actually did it incensed him. Medellin still had Miami, but Cali had New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Houston, Vegas, and now Southern California. They were in at least six countries in Europe. He'd even heard rumors that Gilberto and Miguel had set their sights on Asia next. Escobar believed they had only succeeded with his help by piggybacking off the Medellin shipping network. It seemed only fair to Escobar that he asked for a percentage in return. In November 1986, while Gilberto was still awaiting trial, Escobar called an official meeting between the two cartels. He knew Gilberto couldn't attend due to the trial, and it seems like he was betting on Miguel to be easier to manipulate. They set the meeting for a small village 17 miles east of Cali called Palmira. No bodyguards, no sicarios, only the godfathers of each cartel. Miguel, Chepe, and Pacho met in seclusion with Pablo Escobar and two of Jorge Ochoa's brothers. Jorge had yet to arrive. Not surprising, considering a fugitive has to take extra precautions. But Miguel could sense Escobar was impatient. After a while, Escobar said he didn't want to wait. The Ochoas could catch their brother up when he finally graced them with his presence. Unbeknownst to them, the Colombian military had caught wind of the meeting between Medellin and Cali. Their goal had simply been to surveil, set up roadblocks, and hope to get lucky. But they received an unexpected tip. Jorge Ochoa had picked up several unfortunate habits as a fugitive. One of them was that he'd started dating the girlfriends of Cali cartel men. One of those girls was accompanying Jorge to the meeting in Palmira. Her jealous boyfriend, a member of the Cali cartel, told the soldiers at the roadblocks that Jorge would be driving by in a white Porsche. When Jorge turned the wrong corner, he found himself surrounded by military personnel. Jorge offered the men a bribe. But when even $400,000 couldn't sway them, Jorge stepped out of the vehicle and gave himself up. He wasn't concerned. 
They were in Cali territory, where no fly buzzed without Hilberto and Miguel's knowledge and permission. He'd be released within the hour, surely, as soon as they heard about the mistake. Unfortunately for him, they didn't. The jealous boyfriend waited days to tell his bosses what had happened, and by then, Jorge was sitting in a maximum security prison awaiting extradition to the United States. Jorge escaped and became a fugitive again a month later. But by then, he no longer trusted Hilberto or Miguel. Back at the cartel meeting, with Jorge's seat still empty, Escobar revealed why he had gathered the Godfathers together. He wanted to create a super cartel that could guide the political and strategic future of all trafficking in Colombia. Under the Medellin umbrella, the Cali Godfathers could continue to operate as they had always done. In return, they would pay the Medellin cartel a 30% fee and, of course, acquiesce to Escobar's leadership. The Cali Godfathers were a little taken aback. It was clear from Escobar's tense body language that there would be no negotiating here. When Miguel told him they wouldn't be paying him anything, the air was sucked out of the room. Escobar backed away, shaken with anger. He muttered, but this is war then, and rushed out of the room. The war between Cali and Medellin will begin right after this. Now back to the story. After Pablo Escobar declared war on the Cali cartel in November 1986, the whole Colombian drug trafficking world held its breath, waiting to see who would strike first, if anyone. In March of 1987, Hilberto was released from prison and took over the cartel strategy again, while Miguel went back to managing day-to-day -day affairs. They would need to make adjustments if they could no longer use Escobar's shipping network to get their product into the United States. Fortunately, Pacho and Miguel's work in Mexico had already laid the foundation for trafficking there. But in trying to accommodate Escobar, they were only tearing the rift between the cartels wider. Escobar had imagined himself a linchpin in Colombian trafficking, and now he saw the Cali cartel had outgrown him. The relationship between the cartels was on the razor's edge. What finally tipped them off the edge into war was something so small it surprised everyone. In 1987, Cali godfather Pacho Herrera found himself with a bit of a headache. An old friend from his time in American prison had resurfaced, asking protection. He had been sleeping with the sister of a low-level Medellin drug dealer, and the drug dealer found out. The Medellin dealer demanded that Pacho's friend marry his sister to restore their family's honor. When Pacho's friend refused, the dealer asked his higher-ups in the Medellin cartel for his head. Escobar placed a quick call to Chepe Santa Cruz, Cali needed to hand over Pacho's friend for execution. Chepe asked for a moment to consult with Pacho about the details. Instead, he called a sudden meeting between all four Cali godfathers. Pacho's friend was irrelevant. Even Pacho knew that. What he represented, though, would seal the fate of both cartels. They all knew nothing good would come from defying an already sensitive Escobar, but giving in would weaken them too. 
They agreed not to hand the man over. Chepe called Escobar back and said, We have no quarrel with the man. Escobar's reaction was immediate. He said that if Pacho's friend wasn't handed over that day, he would have every single member of Pacho's family killed. With that, the war began. True to his word, Pacho's family was soon being tailed by dark cars. They would pick up the phone only to hear breathing before the line went dead. Pacho's boyfriend worried he would be particularly singled out. He was already a vulnerable target in such a conservative country. Pacho asked Miguel for the name of his best assassin. Miguel reached out to the cartel's most trusted killer, a man named Freckles, who looked uncannily like American actor Nicolas Cage. Freckles had murdered his own brother for betraying the cartel years before. While Pablo Escobar's wife and children slept in their luxury apartment in Medellin, Freckles parked a car packed with explosives just outside. Moments after he had run to a safe distance, two watchmen were killed instantly. The bomb left a crater in the street 13 feet deep. Fortunately for Escobar's family, they escaped mostly unharmed, but his little girl would suffer partial hearing loss for the rest of her life. Escobar was surprisingly level-headed about the whole thing. His first move was to track down the man who had made the bomb and hire him to make others which Escobar could plant in Cali. He then had his men round up suspected Cali players in Medellin. Any person from Cali suspected of working for the cartel would forfeit his life by traveling into Medellin. On July 11, 1988, five bodies were found strung up outside Medellin, on display with a note identifying them as Cali Sicarios, or hitmen. A second bomb targeted Escobar's family shortly afterward, injuring Escobar's mother and pregnant sister. Hilberto called Pablo personally after hearing about the bomb, swearing they hadn't planted it. Escobar didn't believe him. A month later, on August 18th, Escobar sent a group of arsonists to Cali. They set fire to the largest and oldest stores of Hilberto's drugstore franchise. Seven customers were killed, 24 were injured, and the fire burned down seven houses and 20 other businesses before it could be contained. For the first time, Hilberto's temperature rose. The chess player, as people still called him, was watching his past disappear in a choking haze of smoke. His flagship store, the first he had ever bought, was gone. The Cali Godfathers assembled yet again. They hired an outside group of hitmen to kill Escobar for $5 million. But Pablo was ready for them. When the hitmen arrived, he offered them double the money to return to Cali. The men accepted. Cali then sent a second group of killers, this time pulled from their own loyal men. Bribery wouldn't work so easily on them. Shortly after, each godfather received a box of their hitmen's body parts in the mail. As the war escalated, both cartels began ratting out their enemies' shipments and secrets to the DEA through anonymous letters or even overt phone calls. 
the DEA found itself in the odd position of getting intel straight from the horse's mouth. If you'll recall, the seizure of the cocaine aboard the Medellin freighter Amazon Sky lost Escobar and the Medellin cartel a profit of nearly $2 billion in a single day, all thanks to an anonymous letter addressed from Cali, Colombia. While the DEA loved being able to more easily build their case against both cartels, it wasn't long before Colombia's violence spilled over into American streets. Medellin began trying to encroach on Cali's New York territory, and Cali began flooding the streets of Miami with product to drive Medellin prices and profits straight into the ground. Dozens of bombings and murders in American cities were linked directly to the cartel war. If something didn't give, both countries would pay the price. But things only escalated when an attempt was made on Miguel Rodriguez's life late in 1988. In what Escobar must have thought was a poetic gesture of revenge, he sent an assassin in a car loaded with explosives to Cali. It seemed, however, that death was on Miguel's side that day. The car bomb exploded prematurely, killing the assassin and destroying three homes long before it reached Miguel's neighborhood. Curiously, the news from this time in Colombia's history is overtly one-sided. Escobar started to suspect that the Colombian government and media were blaming the war on him and him alone, ignoring Cali's contributions to the conflict. Though he had no way of knowing at the time, Escobar's paranoia was justified. Gilberto and Miguel had invested in media outlets across Colombia, as well as bribing most of the heads of government. On top of that, they had taken a staunchly different approach to wooing local law enforcement. Escobar had placed a bounty of $4,000 on the head of any police officer. Literally, anyone could walk into a Medellin office with the head of a police officer and collect a reward. During the war with Cali, that bounty rose to $8,000 per head. In contrast, the Rodriguez brothers and their co-godfathers had invested in police departments across Cali. They paid for training, equipment, protective gear, and even guard houses around the city to make the citizens feel more at ease and to give the cartel fair warning of potential attack. All of this meant that at the end of 1988, the Cali cartel appeared as a sympathetic victim of Pablo Escobar's bullying. They knew, however, that this misdirection would only last so long. Colombia was burning around them. The United States was gunning for a fight, and people were beginning to lose sight of the faith they once had in Gilberto and Miguel Rodriguez. Decisive action was required to end the cartel war once and for all. All their previous attempts to kill Escobar had only made him more brutal. They would need outside help. Someone with skills. Someone with luck. A soldier of fortune who would, for the right price, topple an empire. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we explore how the Rodriguez brothers tried to kill Pablo Escobar and almost destroyed themselves in the process. 
You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of Parcast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Jordan Trapier and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.